Welcome to Orthopod, a podcast about the people of orthopedics and their stories. We understand that we all play many roles in our careers and lives, and it is these very stories that ultimately inform our successes and failures. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Orthopod. I'm Mo Bendari, the Editor-in-Chief of Ortho Evidence, and I'm here with Rohit Ramchandani, who is interesting in that he served as a consultant to the Secretariat of the Independent Panel of Pandemic Preparedness and Response. And I'll let him explain a little bit more of what that means. But for our listeners and our viewers, I think this is particularly important and relevant to all fields uh, within medicine. And I think particularly also important to uh, orthopedics worldwide, as well as those of us who are practitioners uh, in this area. And here's why. We're learning lots and lots, and we've had lots of um, interesting um, news and insights from this last few years. We've gone through multiple waves of, of, of the COVID-19 you know, pandemic. And more importantly, there may be others in the future. May not be COVID, maybe some other, but we have to be prepared for what's coming on. So what do we learn from this and how do we set up systems? What do we do right? What do we do wrong? I think we're going to have an interesting discussion with Rohit on this particular topic. So without further ado, welcome, Rohit. And maybe you might want to give a bit more context to this um, and why this is such an important area. Sure. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Mohit. And, and thanks for having me uh, today. Um, so uh, the independent panel uh, was really established in, in September of, of 2020 uh, by the WHO Director General, uh, and really with the mission of, of providing uh, an evidence-based path for, for the future, uh, grounded in, in lessons of, of the present pandemic, as well as kind of past experiences uh, to, to ensure uh, countries and global systems and institutions like the World Health Organization uh, can effectively address health threats. Um, and, and really to provide recommendations uh, to, to try and, and, and prevent this kind of thing from ever happening again, uh, or, or at least kind of ensure that our systems are robust enough to quickly and effectively you know, neutralize potential threats. Um, and so the, the, the panel uh, was co-chaired by Helen Clark, uh, who is the former uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand, uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, uh, the former President of Liberia, uh, and included a, a total of 13 panel members, uh, and they represented, you know, a variety of, of skill sets ranging from infectious diseases, uh, global and national health policy and financing, uh, economics, emergencies, outbreaks, uh, women and girls, etc. And, and we're talking about, uh, like yourself, uh, you know, some of the leading minds in, in their fields, and, and many of whom, uh, you know, I've looked up to for, for many years. And so it was a great honor to be able to kind of support their work. Um, and, and the main mechanism uh, by, by which that was done uh, was through an independent secretariat um, headed by Anders Nordstrom, who, who took leave as ambassador for uh, global health at the Swedish Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, and I was actually brought in to serve as a consultant to the secretariat uh, by a good friend of mine, uh, an old classmate from, from Hopkins, uh, whose name is Shun Mabuchi. Uh, is a fellow DRPH, a doctor of public health and, and senior advisor at the Gates Foundation. Um, and, and along with some of the panel members, he was uh, primary co-author uh, of the study that, that we're going to kind of discuss today. 
Great. So, I mean, lots of great background here. So tell us a little bit about what were the principal messages uh, that you want to share with audiences worldwide? Sure. Um, so, I mean, our research, uh, which was part of work uh, commissioned by the independent panel, uh, and then uh, adapted into a larger uh, British medical journal series looking at COVID-19 preparedness and response, uh, kind of implications for future pandemics, uh, looked at, at the need for redesigning systems to improve pandemic response with a particular focus on um, key countermeasure tools like vaccines, uh, therapeutics, and, and diagnostics, and, and how these innovations were, were effectively or, or not uh, brought to bear in this pandemic response. Um, and, and so we did that uh, through you know, a number of methods. Uh, we used a, a value chain analysis um, and, and a value chain framework to kind of explore the successes, challenges, and lessons for, for key COVID-19 tools. Uh, and, and so, let, me this, let me just jump in. When you talk about value chain, what do you mean by value chain in the context of, uh, you know, the COVID-19, you know, say vaccines, for example? Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, a value chain is, is essentially, it's a business model that describes kind of the full range of uh, interdependent activities needed to bring a product from, from conception to community you know, to the end user. So in this uh, case, for example, Rohit, in this case, would it be things like, okay, you know, how do you set up the leadership when something needs to get done? Um, how do you set up the research and how do you rapidly develop whatever has to get done? Uh, how do you make it? And then how do you get it out? Like, so all those little kind of silos. Okay, got it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. so exactly that. You know, it can be thought of as, as this kind of ecosystem of, of players and processes and information and resources. Uh, that are that are required to deliver effectively these products, and and so uh, we considered you know different phases of of the value chain. We looked at overall governance and, and coordination. Uh, we looked at research and development. Uh, we looked at manufacturing at scale, uh, procurement, and then allocation and, and delivery. So that kind of entire innovation life cycle. Um, is 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 kind of the the, the focus um, and 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 looking at what worked, what didn't, what were the lessons learned in each of those uh, phases, um, and and so uh, you know we collected data through a variety of different means. We did you know literature review, peer reviewed papers, policy documents, and articles, public reports. We did semi structured interviews. Uh, with 25 experts representing a cross-section of stakeholders, uh, including uh, multilateral institutions, uh, philanthropy, researchers, NGOs. Uh, we talked to representatives from high, low, and middle-income countries, um, as, as well as uh, held uh, two roundtable discussions with 18 experts around the world with deep knowledge about various facets of, of this kind of innovation lifecycle. Um, and so uh, to get to your question about, you know, key, key messages, um, there, there were a number. So one, uh, you know, is, is that global efforts have, have really been unsuccessful in, in providing equitable access to COVID-19 uh, vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics. Um, and, and so, you know, as an example, only about 10% of people in, in low-income countries have, have received at least one dose of vaccine to date. Um, and, and this is, you know, within a context where 
more than 60% of the global population has received at least one dose of a vaccine. Um, and, and, and that means about, and 54% have received a, a complete initial protocol, uh, which in most cases means two doses. Um, and, and so clearly there's kind of a skew towards wealthy nations. Right. Um, and, and this, there's, there's kind of widespread consensus that, you know, these inequities in access to vaccines are, are creating the perfect conditions for generating uh, new variants of concern. And, and that's why the WHO keeps saying, you know, this pandemic doesn't end until everyone everywhere has access to these essential tools. Um, and now with, with the advent of, uh, oral antivirals, um, you know, there's growing concerns that inequities in access will extend to therapeutics. Uh, and, and these access disparities, you know, are, are really likely to accentuate the already frail state of health systems that have been, you know, diverted uh, to deal with COVID-19. And, and so, um, you know, I, I think uh, the, the backlogs of, of services for other conditions and health workforce, uh, that, you know, like here, uh, but, but perhaps even more constrained are, are really dealing with burnout and, and short supply and, you yeah. know, um, and, and then, you know, so if, as an example, if we look at uh, distribution, you know, Canada has really only delivered 12 million of the 50 million vaccines it had committed to uh, COVAX, which is the vaccine arm of, of the uh, access to COVID-19 tools accelerator. That's like one of the main multilateral mechanisms that was set up to, you know, deliver uh, these tools for the world in an equitable right. fashion. Um, and, and, and then COVAX has only delivered half of the two, two billion uh, vaccines it, it promised last year. And so, you know, these 25 to 50% outcomes, uh, you know, fall well below the kind of minimum benchmarks for, for performance in a pandemic. Uh, and so that kind of really requires some attention. Well, let me ask you this. Um, I mean, just, yeah. like, like just because there's a lot of food for thought there um, and maybe like just dig a little deeper before we get to some of the other key messages. And I'm sure there's lots of in insights here to be shared. But when you look back at, how we performed in retrospect. And again, mind you, this was completely a novel coronavirus and that in itself is you know, unique in the sense of how do you manage it? Lots of learning. How do you think we did? So all things said and done, you know, when you look back and you see all the challenges, but you know, knowing what we did at the time, if you go back to March, you know, I guess March 11th of 2020, when you know, WHO called this a global pandemic um, and everything really just skyrocketed thereafter. How did, how did we do uh, with respect to, you know, if there was a simple grade mark to be given, uh, what would we be getting for that? And then ultimately, what can we actually do knowing what we know? Some of these things, I think you can often say, well, you know, we know what we have to do. But if we were to have another novel virus come up, would we have the mental capacity and the wherewithal to say, okay, we will actually make those changes? Yeah, I mean... Look, this is uh, this is an unprecedented situation, you know, yeah. and 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 it was uh, a first for for you know global systems in 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 many ways, you know, yeah. you know this generation, anyways, uh, and and so uh, you know I I think there there was a lot that was done very well, um, and and there was a lot you know there's still a lot to uh, to work on, you know, and 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 I think that certainly uh, you know. Uh, the global community 
tried to do the best it could, but I, I, I think there was much more opportunity um, for, for taking a more kind of collective approach, uh, you know, and so, you know, a, one of the other kind of core findings or key messages uh, is, is that, you know, a core underlying issue, uh, you know, has been a lack of a shared vision that these essential public health tools should be considered a, a global health commons. Um, and, and, you know, this is the idea that these tools uh, be available for all countries to ensure collective protection, right? And you're using the word tools in the context of, let's say, uh, therapeutics. These, these, these three yeah. kind of classes of, of yes. interventions. So vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, 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 and so it kind of builds on the concept of a commons as uh, a managed public pool a resource of certain goods and services, right? That are valuable, but in constrained supply. And that's, right. and that there's a need for, for intervention to ensure uh, equitable public health access. And, and in this way, it kind of recenters public health solidarity over corporate interests. Right. right? So in some way, if you're looking at a report card based on global um, access, one might say, you know, some places in the world received an A, A minus, maybe an A plus, I doubt it, but you know, in the A's, and there are some that really should be getting an F in terms of the way things were handled. And it's not necessarily the country of origin, but the way in which the world managed, um, you know, access to resources. And I can imagine some of the storyline that you're talking about and the massive discrepancy between low middle income countries which, by the way, have a majority of the world's populations, uh, I know, uh, would seem, but also, but you know, don't have anywhere near the access to the resources that you know others do. I think that really becomes. I think it's. I think most of us are aware of that disparity, but I think it becomes even heightened, much more heightened, when we think about something which all of us are in need. You know, the one thing, Rod, I'll tell you is that I can't remember a time, and maybe uh, you can, but I certainly can't, where the whole world at every single human being was feeling roughly the same thing at the same point in time. There was a general sense that we had a global priority, which we each and every one of us was aligned. And in that situation, you really do get to see a visual real-time representation of how resources allocated and where global priorities seem to sit, because you see just who gets what and who doesn't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think I think one of the challenges was that, you know, without this kind of shared vision uh, globally, and and given the urgency with which, you know, decisions had to be made, um, you know, the usual market based approach was was what was taken. You know, so global corporations developed and sold, you know, proprietary products designed for wealthy countries leaving the rest of the world kind of reliant on, on uh, the goodwill of, of donors and development assistance and charity. Uh, and, and this is, you know, despite substantial public investment before and, and during the pandemic in research and in organizations like the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations and, you know, but the benefits weren't necessarily kind of aligned, you know, in, in that way. And, and really, you know, like I mentioned before, ACTI, this is the only multilateral mechanism that was really developed uh, to, to access, you know, these tools and, and make sure that they were equally distributed. Um, and so, you know, huge kudos to them, but it ended up following a relatively standard market model, you know, and, and so it's like product development, trials, emergency use authorization, 
selling to high income countries and then redistributing to low and middle income countries. And so, um, you know, that, that just, it, it, it doesn't work, uh, you know, on a, on a, for a global challenge, for a global problem, you need a global solution. Um, and, and, and so we ended up taking a more kind of siloed uh, approach at the end of it. And, you know, um, the value chain approach that, that you, you utilize certainly has, you know, has its roots, you know, in, in many other areas as well. And, and certainly when we think about surgery and let's go maybe specifically to orthopedic surgery, Rod, one of the big, um, challenges, obviously there was for sure on what we call the surgical front lines. And for many of our, um, you know, um, healthcare practitioners, whether they're sports medicine, physio, there's a host of subspecialists who are all really on the front line, who are impacted by, you know, healthcare policies and access and, and patients were, because patients were, you know, impacted. One yeah. big thing that came out and has been an issue has been the surgical backlog, you know, access to actual uh, surgical care because the pandemic, you know, had restrictions on, you know, the illness itself. When we think about this approach, I mean, I presume there's a way to even think about uh, modeling the value chain as it also works out to those that, you know, I mean, COVID itself had a series of issues about getting vaccines out, but because of that challenge, there were some major secondary challenges like the tsunami that we now have of people waiting for surgery. That was because of, you know, what's, what's been happening on the primary focus on getting, you know, the COVID vaccines and the treatments out to patients and also, you know, managing patient safety in a public health area. How do we even think through and, and should we be also as a community and, and subspecies be thinking about how we manage that? How many you know, of the sort of the consequences that are yeah. indirectly related to the, you know, primary pandemic itself? Yeah, 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 I, I, I agree. Like, uh, you know, there were certainly um, secondary add-on effects of the pandemic. And, and, and that's why I think it's so uh, important to look at uh, these kinds of challenges from a systems perspective and, and, and really kind of apply that broader lens to understand, you know, what, what the totality of, of this whole thing is. You know, you look at, you know, the next grand challenge that, that I will be focusing on is, is mental health, uh, as an example, you know, and, and that's been a huge uh, kind of secondary add-on effect uh, of, of, of the pandemic. And, and we've seen, you know, increases in, in uh, depression and anxiety, uh, you know, 27%, 25% uh, as a result. And, and so, um, you know, like, like you're, you're noting, you know, the, the, the backlog of, of surgeries, um, you know, we, we saw vaccinations, uh, you know, standard regular vaccinations uh, in, in children um, uh, drop off in, in a number of countries. Um, and, and so, you know, I think applying that broader systems lens uh, uh, becomes becomes really critical, you know, and 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 so the lessons that we learned uh, from this analysis, yeah. um, we we did ex exactly that. So you know, what uh, were some of the key lessons uh, that we need to apply going forward to to yeah. improve the, our, our systems? Um, so so future systems for for these kinds of three classes of tools they really need to be pre-negotiated among countries uh, and manufacturers and, and international institutions, right? Uh, and, and this pre-negotiated system uh, to accelerate R&D and, and achieve 
that kind of equitable access under this kind of global health commons uh, banner is, is really at the center of what would be a legally binding pandemic framework convention uh, that, that we kind of propose in this paper. Um, and, and there are five uh, components to this kind of uh, proposed framework, uh, some of which are, are now being discussed and, and pursued at, at the international level. Um, but the first is uh, an end-to-end R&D platform. And, and where that's where you know research and development is is guided by strategy led uh, portfolio approach you know so you can invest in a variety of, of uh, vaccine or therapeutic candidates and then kind of double down on on your best bets as as you go based on the evidence that's emerging um, use of, of target product profiles you know when when these vaccines were developed you know they weren't necessarily done uh, so in a, in a manner that that was was kind of catered to low income countries, you know. Uh, so the requirement for a cold chain would would be one example, you know. So thinking about target product profiles and how we can use those tools to really design for the needs of of different uh, contexts, uh, consideration of access right from the start. You know, so this kind of end-to-end R and D thinking, um, as well as you know, understanding country demand, uh, and and also you know where trials are designed to to answer key public health questions uh, rather than designed for for speed, um, where you would have the ability to kind of compare vaccines head to head and and use similar endpoints, right? So that that kind of apples are, are, aren't being compared to oranges, um, where, where you'd have systems that kind of vet the quality of research. Uh, you know, there were a lot of cases where the media would cover research and, and give the same weight to a, an observational study with a sample size of 30 uh, and, and a RCT with a sample size of 30,000, you know, uh, and, and the public takes that at, at face value. Um, we should we should also have well distributed regional trial sites uh, with with diversity of, of participants and, and geographies represented, uh, including high risk groups. You know that that didn't happen. Um, uh, there's there's a need for predictable financing, which is the second component, uh, where where you'd have kind of a, a legal agreement to to provide upfront like substantial upfront funds to kind of counter the nationalism that we saw uh, and enable, you know, rapid responses. So, um, and, and for things like global manufacturing, that was a major uh, kind of bottleneck in, in, in the system. Um, so, so, you know, the independent panel actually, uh, they, they recommended creating a new financing facility um, to, for, for pandemic preparedness that, that would basically build on long-term funding commitments, annual contributions uh, that kind of work on a scale, you know, so, so uh, you know, wealthy countries give uh, proportionally, low-income countries give proportionally, so that kind of thing. So that's, you know, another area. So, so there's the financing. Then um, inclusive governance, you know, with clear playbooks, um, you know, that means greater inclusiveness, transparency, uh, and country consensus where, where it's beyond just high income countries and private manufacturers, uh, but, but particularly uh, low and middle income countries, civil society organizations, countries with, uh, you know, relevant manufacturing capacity like India, China, Russia, who really kind of 
weren't engaged in in the same way um you know so those are those are those are some yeah oh this is this is really great i mean i think i think we can apply this to many areas and i think this approach is an important one where you know there's so many things that we do um they're just inefficient um and yet we continue to do them even though we know better and i think having these discussions i think is important you know and i think having discussions around i mean the reality is is each and every one of us has been impacted in the last you know two years and i don't think i don't think it's over yet but the truth is we're starting to see recovery in, in a way in which you know we're starting to see vaccine mandates now changing uh, just in ontario i just noticed this morning that they've announced that there'll be no more vaccine passports in the province of ontario and canada as of march 1st and we're seeing other groups have led uh, much earlier than that international trans um, you know flights and things are probably going to open up um, and we're going to at some point go back to whatever that new normal is and here's the challenge when things finally go back do we forget what we just went through or do we start preparing for what's coming and i don't have the answer to that Rod. and i'm certainly uh, glad that people like you much smarter than me are thinking about these issues and uh, working you know globally to help uh, make a change and i can't thank you enough for spending a bit of time with us in ortho evidence helping our our groups think a little bit more about this and what we can be doing and just being aware uh, that you know we should be more prepared and we should be thinking about the future so thank you so much thank you very much appreciate it Mohit.